Well, you know what? I was so mesmerized by it. I came in the house and told my wife that I just saw a UFO. I wasn't frightened. Not at all. Okay. But I was just shocked at what I saw. Shocked, yeah. So I went to my parents' house the following day. And uh, I was telling my mom about it. And my brother came from downstairs, and, and he was hearing the conversation. He said, yeah, he goes, I believe that. He said, because last night, WEBN had about 30 call-ins about that. And that was at 4 o'clock in the morning. Huh. So that, that's a radio station in um, Cincinnati. Does he work there? No. Oh. No, he, oh. he, he, he heard it. He listened. He was listening to the radio. Welcome to this week's episode of Ohio Folklore. Your host, Melissa Davies, is going to take you on a journey through Ohio's most legendary stories. You'll learn the myths, the histories, and everything in between. Come discover what lies beneath the surface of what only seems ordinary in the Buckeye State. Time is short, so let's get looking. Please welcome your host, Melissa Davies. Hello, Ohio Folklore listeners. Today, we'll be exploring long-held claims of extraterrestrial activity in and around Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Since the late 1940s, this storied military base has not been able to dispel claims that it houses alien spacecraft. Some people have even claimed to have witnessed the bodies of the aliens themselves stored deep in underground vaults within its borders. Others have claimed that the government has used the base as a facility to reverse-engineer spacecrafts that have been recovered from UFO wreckages all over the country. We'll talk with one local Fairborn resident, a Mr. Stephen Sams, who has observed UFOs flying in the vicinity on two separate occasions. And we'll explore media reports which document that Stephen is not alone in his observations. Is there truly something otherworldly about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? Or are these undying claims just the result of an overhyped public imagination? Let's dive into the details, and I'll let you decide for yourself. First, a little history on the Air Force Base itself. In 1917, Wilbur Wright Field was opened as a military training facility in the ramp-up to America's involvement in the Great War. Wright Field's purpose was to churn out needed pilots and mechanics. World War I would be one of the first major conflicts to involve air combat, so much training and preparation was needed. After the war was over, around 1924, the city of Dayton purchased about 4,500 acres, on which Wright Field and its supply depot sat. 
The location's name, Wright Field, was retained in honor of both of Dayton's favorite sons, Wilbur and Orville Wright. And later, in 1931, the area east of Huffman Dam was named Patterson Field, after Lieutenant Frank Stewart Patterson. Patterson had been one of those early World War I test pilots who died when the craft he was testing plummeted to the ground when its wings snapped off. Finally, in 1948, the two areas, Wright Field and Patterson Field, would become combined to form Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In the decades that would follow, Wright-Pat, as it's commonly called, would become known far and wide for its programs to test and develop new technology. During the years of the Cold War, it was known for reverse engineering aircraft from foreign governments, keeping the U.S. on the cutting edge of adversaries' technologies. The base's program to disassemble and reassemble Soviet MiG fighter jets is just one example of its role in keeping American flying forces prepared to meet any foe. Today, the base is home to over 27,000 military, civilian, and contract employees. Its host unit, the 88th Air Base Wing, operates the airfield and maintains all infrastructure. This includes security, communications, medical facilities, legal operations, air traffic control, and weather forecasting, among other operations. So just how did such a venerable military institution become associated with the legends of extraterrestrial spacecraft and small, grayish alien bodies? The genesis of this folklore hails from, of all places, a remote ranch in the desert of New Mexico in 1947. Ever heard of a town called Roswell? Americans across the country woke up on the morning of July 8, 1947 to a front-page newspaper headline reading, Army Declares, Flying Disc Found. For those of you who aren't familiar or perhaps don't remember the Roswell story, let's review. I'm going to present it as it unfolded to ordinary citizens across the country that day. That way, we might get a better grasp not only of the story's wide appeal at the time, but also on how it came to play a major role in Wright-Patterson's reputation as a central player in the folklore around UFOs and what the U.S. government knows or does not know about them. Lieutenant Warren Hott, the public information officer at Roswell Airfield, would confirm to newspaper reporters that a flying disc had landed at a ranch 75 miles northwest of Roswell. The rancher from Corona, a Mr. W.W. Brazell, had no phone but took it upon himself to store the disc until he was able to reach the Chavez County Sheriff's Office about the matter. The Sheriff's Department would later contact a Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office in Roswell. A unit was dispatched by the military forces there to collect the disc. It then remained in their possession for some period of time. The disc was seen by Major Marcel, the Sheriff George Wilcox, and the rancher himself. Just how many others observed it is unknown. When the clamor of press inquiries on the matter grew to a crescendo, top Army brass had to step in. 
Brigadier General Roger Ramey was the commanding officer of the Fort Worth Army Air Base in Texas. He confirmed that he ordered the object to be flown to Fort Worth so that he and his staff could further inspect it. He was also quoted in the media as stating that the object was being forwarded to the Army Air Force's Research Center in Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. The Army Air Forces in Washington confirmed that they had received notice from General Ramey that the object, reported to be a flying disc, was indeed being forwarded to Wright Field. You may remember that Wright Field would not be renamed Wright-Patterson Air Force Base until the following year in 1948. The July 8, 1947 reports of this remarkable story ran alongside pleas to the public for further information. Newspapers offered upwards of $3,000 to anyone able to turn in wreckages of flying disks. In the days and weeks that followed, reports of sightings came from all over North America. Multiple branches of the military were responding to the unending claims, including the Navy, Army, and the Civil Air Patrol. Many believe the numerous reports to be pranks or hoaxes. Also, a supposed mass hysteria about the issue may have led to the never-ending sightings. Only a day after the initial newspaper articles on the Roswell incident, on July 9, 1947, articles appeared all over the country chronicling the military's about-face on the story. It was a weather balloon used to determine the velocity of winds at high altitudes. The story of the rancher's discovery of a flying disc was in effect rewritten. The narrative as it was now laid out by Army command staff went like this. The rancher, Mr. Brazell, found the broken remains of a weather balloon scattered over a square mile of his land. Since the closest telephone was 30 miles away, he kept the debris until he was able to make contact with the sheriff's department. This debris consisted of tin foil, wooden beams, and torn synthetic rubber. For added emphasis, a picture of the debris was published alongside the, quote, corrected reports. You can find this photo at ohiofolklore.com. Previous reports that a flying disc had been found were supposedly erroneous. Mr. Brazell and the sheriff had reached out to the staff at the Roswell Airfield about the incident and that's when Major Jesse Marcel, the responding officer, took possession of the debris. You may recall that his first statements to the media described what he found as a flying disc. To contrast, the article published one day later insisted that the debris was from a weather balloon. Major Marcel took it in his possession and was later ordered to bring it to Fort Worth Army Field in Texas so that General Ramey and his staff could inspect it. Now, General Ramey insisted that the Army had no knowledge of a, quote, disc. He stated that the weather balloon could have easily been mistaken for a UFO while it was in the air. Obviously, the change in story brought about doubt and questions from the public about what exactly happened. From early on, claims of a government cover-up surfaced. It appeared that the initial reports from the staff on the ground at Roswell Airfield, including Lieutenant Haught and Major Marcel, were corrected by higher-ups. In fact, Lieutenant Haught himself would later come forward and express his disbelief on the later contrary claims, stating, I think it was an extremely well-planned cover-up. 
He would go on to specify that the material he observed was nothing like he'd ever seen before. He described it as incredibly strong, pliable, lightweight material that could be crumpled up only to return exactly to its original form. The initial story of the crash site was picked up by the Associated Press and gained traction. It stirred a frenzy among Americans across the country and someone needed to quell the storm. Many were not convinced by the claims that it was a weather balloon. Many are not yet convinced today. And those who remain skeptical of the government's about face have some good questions. For example, if the debris was indeed an ordinary weather balloon, why go through all the steps of transporting the material to Fort Worth and then later on to Wright Field? The assessment of the material should have been completed on the site and it should have simply been disposed of. What's the need for all the further inspection of something so mundane as a weather balloon? To add to the intrigue, there are reports of a cover-up that was operating at even higher levels than previously claimed. Some believe that before any debris was taken to Fort Worth, that a separate flight carrying the actual flying disc and alien bodies were taken directly to Wright Field, without the knowledge of General Ramey. The conspiracy theory alleges that what was sent to Fort Worth was indeed a jumbled up mess of the remains of a weather balloon. Then, General Ramey could easily make a credible report to the press on what he inspected. This presumably led to the photos of the broken up weather balloon, which were published alongside the corrected reports. A Roswell mortician, Glenn Dennis, told reporters in 1997 on the 50-year anniversary of Roswell that at the time of the incident, he had been contacted by the Roswell Airfield-based mortuary officer. He wanted to know what was the smallest size hermetically sealed casket that he kept in stock. Later that day, when on an ambulance run to the base hospital, Dennis saw a strange wreckage at the back of two army ambulances parked outside the entrance to the base hospital. An army nurse who was a close friend of his told him that she had taken part in autopsies for non-human creatures that had been brought in by officers. She claimed that their hands had only four digits with little suction cups on their tips. The arms were of abnormal proportions with the length from the shoulder to the elbow longer than would be expected, and the head was very large with sunken in eyes. Another confusing story surfaced in 1997, resulting from claims put out by military officials. As the interest in the Roswell incident continued to rise on its 50-year anniversary, perhaps the government felt compelled to weigh in on the hype. Whatever the reason, an official Air Force report then claimed that the, quote, alien bodies were actually crash test dummies used in parachute experiments. The government's 1997 report on crash test dummies being mistaken for aliens in the Roswell incident did nothing to convince Frank Kaufman, former intelligence officer. He was 80 years old in 1997 and reported to the press that he and several of his colleagues were part of a unit that retrieved the Roswell wreckage. He described encountering five bodies that were hairless, ash-colored, and no taller than five feet four inches. 
One body was thrown out of the wreckage against a steep-sided gully, another was half in and half out of the wreckage, and the other three bodies were inside the craft. So this legendary American folktale about the wreckage of a flying saucer found in the desert of New Mexico in the summer of 1947 is left at the doorstep of what would become Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The story ends with the material being left there, and the questions about what exactly the object or objects were and what came of them remains a mystery. From this point forward, fantastic legends would surround the base, claiming it as a repository for extraterrestrial debris from wreckages from across the country. In the years since the Roswell incident, there have been numerous other claims that Wright-Pat has collected wreckage from other incidents as well. There have been multiple claims of first-hand observations of wrecked alien spacecraft and even alien bodies themselves. These claims have been gathered from former military personnel and civilian employees from the base. Some claims have been made from people on their deathbeds, not wanting to go to the grave holding the secret of what they observed. In addition, locals who live in and around the base have speculated for decades about Wright-Pat's role in storing, inspecting, and reverse engineering alien spacecraft. Some believe that the unusually high number of disc-shaped UFO sightings in the area may be attributed to the Air Force's testing of new technology based on the alien spacecraft they've examined. A man by the name of Mr. Warren Botts was a former pilot who was attending a reunion at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base of his squadron, the Flying Tigers. He claims to have accidentally seen a disc-shaped craft designed by the Air Force in Hangar 4, Bay E. The armed guard who was stationed there did not see him enter at first. Only when he walked up to the disc-shaped craft did the guard approach him and question him. He estimated the size as over 100 feet in diameter and a height of about 12 feet off the hangar floor. With Wright-Pat's history of reverse engineering foreign aircrafts, the theory soon rose that what Bot saw was a device patterned off wreckages from alien spacecraft. Let's hear from one local, a Mr. Stephen Sams, on his own sightings on two separate occasions. Stephen was born and raised in Fairborn, a suburb of Dayton that runs adjacent to the military base. Although he's lived in other parts of the country in years past, he's only ever observed UFOs from his current home in Fairborn. His most recent sighting, on June 18, 2019, was reported on by local TV news that night. You can also find a YouTube video of the disc-shaped object, as was spotted by so many that day. It's posted on Ohio Folklore's Facebook page as well. It looks like a flat disc, bright and white, as though it's self-illuminated, with some small lines that are visible within it, and it reportedly hovered in one position for about three hours before disappearing. The National UFO Reporting Center, found at nuforc.org, compiles a list of UFO sightings around the country. A visit to their website shows that this specific sighting was officially recorded from six separate locations in and around Dayton on June 18, 2019. 
This included reports from the cities of London, Fairborn, Middletown, Dayton, and Troy. You can read the full accounts of what was observed on their website. It appears that our Fairborn resident, Stephen Sams, was only one of many UFO observers that day. Let's hear from him directly about his own experience. Yeah, my brother-in-law and me was out and was out my driveway, and we looked up and saw that. We thought it was a star at first, but and it was really bright. And it was the only one there, and it was still daylight out. So, you know, we didn't know what it was. And it wasn't moving. It was in the middle of the day. Yeah, well, no, it was about 5.30 in the afternoon. Oh, 5.30, okay. Yeah, so you both saw it at the same time. Well, he noticed it first. And then, of course, I looked at it. So this but, was just uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, is that right? Yeah. Um, and you were outside just maybe enjoying the evening? Yeah, we're just, yeah, we're just talking. And, it, yeah, it, was under, it looked like a star. And then he said, that looks like the North Star, but, of course, it's in the West from where I'm at. So right. I said, that's not North. I said, North is that way. So that ruled that out. We did. We sat and watched it, but it wasn't moving. So did it look just like a star in the sky? Yeah, I mean, it was just it was just a bright light. Uh, but it was brighter than the average star. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it was also as big or bigger than a regular star. The the wildest thing about it was, I mean, there's no stars out at that time. You know, the sun's out. It's daylight. Yeah, you couldn't see um, any other stars. No. They weren't visible yet. Yeah. Not at all. Right. So this was bright enough to to emit so it would overcome the, the light from the day. You could see it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people saw it. Oh, so you, did you talk to others who saw it as well? No, it was on the news. Oh, but it was enough enough people saw it that it made the news that night. Right, yeah, sure did. Well, that must have been something. Yeah, but nobody knew what it was. <laughs> did the newscast, did they suggest what they thought it was? Nobody took uh, responsibility for it. So nobody knew what it was. So I really don't know what it was. And did you say that you had seen it about a year prior also? Oh, not the same one. Uh, no, I was uh, I was out on my porch about 4 o'clock in the morning. And I was smoking a cigarette. And, you know, naturally I look up in the sky. I saw three stars right beside each other. Straight across, anyways. I just saw, I thought, wow, because they was perfectly straight across from each other. And I just thought it was kind of unusual. And then I'm looking around, and I go back to them. One of them, the one that was in the center, all right, I, I don't know what it was, maybe a smoke. Uh, it was something that came from it. It, then it went straight up, and it took like three seconds, and it just disappeared. All three of them? 
No, just the one in the center. The one that looked like had some smoke come out of it? Yeah, and it wasn't, I don't know if it was smoke. I don't really know what it was. It was just, it, but, but that's what I, I can't say I believe it was smoke. Something came out of it, so that did look like smoke. But okay. you could actually, you could actually see something happen. But what happened, I don't know. And so, um, like I said, it took about three seconds, and you could see it just go straight up and, and then disappear. I mean, that fast. So did this seem at all similar to what you saw three weeks ago? Oh, no. No, it was totally different. So the, um, the difference were the way that it was behaving and moving? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like you say, it looked like three stars, but they were straight across from each other. But the one in the center, just something come from it. I don't know what it was. And three seconds later, you can actually see it go and disappear. You see it go upwards and disappear. And then the other two, did they stay where they were? Well, you know what? I was so mesmerized by it. I came in the house and told my wife that I just saw a UFO. Not going back out there and looking again to see the other two. Because you were frightened? No, I wasn't frightened. Not okay. at all. Okay. But I was just shocked at what I saw. Shocked, yeah. And so, so I went to my parents' house the following day, and uh, I was telling my mom about it. And my brother came from downstairs, and, and he was hearing the conversation. He said, yeah, he goes, I believe that. He said, because last night, WEBN had about 30 call-ins about that. And that was at 4 o'clock in the morning. Huh. So that's a radio station in um, Cincinnati. Does he work there? No, no. He oh. he 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 heard it. He listened. He was listening to the radio. Oh, and they mentioned it. Yeah. So both times you were certainly not alone in what you saw. Right. Correct. And you had so many other people, which that has uh, confirmation there, which right. is helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, that was amazing to me. If you just think that something comes from it, you don't know what it is, but it takes two seconds for it to, you can actually watch it disappear. And you, you live in Fairborn? Right? Yes, yes. Okay. So you were looking um, in what direction? Semi over top there, force base, not, but not actually over top. Okay. They were just, they were north of it. One that happened a few weeks back, yeah. it was it was on the north side of the base also. Have, have you lived in uh, Fairborn all your life? Oh, no. No. Um, California, Florida, and then back oh. to Fairborn. Is this the only place that you've observed anything UFO-like? In all your travels? Actually, actually, yes. 
one of the reasons I've gotten into studying this specific area is it does seem to have a higher number of reports and sightings. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why the news media is so on top of reporting them, I would guess. It's pretty amazing to think if there's any truth to it that we have, you know, our government has proof of alien oh. life forms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. As, as much as you hear, much as you read, uh, and even a lot of people, what they see, uh, I mean, how can you not believe in it? So now that we've heard from a local on the ground who's had his own first-hand experiences, let's delve more into the history of how this legend has grown in the decades since the Roswell incident of 1947. As I mentioned earlier, a flurry of news reports on Wright-Pat's connection to UFOs surfaced in 1997, the 50th anniversary of Roswell. For the record, the official statement from the command staff at Wright-Pat has always been that they never received any alien wreckage or alien bodies from Roswell or any other location. That statement has not quashed the legend that flying disks and alien bodies have been or perhaps remain stored there. In 1994, for example, Representative Steve Schiff of New Mexico responded to pressure from his constituents when he made a public request for information from the National Archives on the Roswell incident. The agency claimed having no such documentation. He then escalated his request to the U.S. General Accounting Office under the authority of Congress's power to investigate unresolved issues. Again, his request garnered no documentation. Throughout his public request, Representative Schiff expressed a belief that the incident likely involved a top-secret defense device, perhaps something to intercept missiles, or a device built to detect Soviet nuclear tests. This would account for all the secrecy and changing stories. He was disinclined to believe whatever was found was extraterrestrial. Multiple news reports at the time suggested that the Roswell debris was in fact forwarded to Wright Field. And before the story was officially changed, command staff at the Washington branch of the Army Air Force confirmed that the debris from Roswell was being sent there. Despite this, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base has been unable to produce any documents on the receipt of the debris of the supposed weather balloon and the outcome of any inspection of it. Colonel James Miller, head of the National Air Intelligence Center at Wright-Pat in 1994, acknowledged that this total lack of documentation is troubling. He admitted that a theory of a cover-up, one that kept himself out of the loop, was plausible. However, he also suggested that the debris could have well been what remained of a top-secret defense device, which would have necessitated the presumed cover-up. While no documentation of the receipt of the weather balloon at Wright Field exists, we do know that a team from the Elite Air War College arrived there in July 1947. The Air War College is a professional military education school that trains officers in the use of air and space operations. One of those officers on location at the time was a World War II fighter pilot, Marion Magruder. His son, Mark Magruder, retold stories in a documentary by the History Channel 
describing what his father shared about what he witnessed there. Officer Magruder observed lightweight, pliable material that would reshape itself into its original form after being crumpled. The material couldn't be torn or destroyed, and reportedly he saw the wreckage of the flying disc and bodies of the aliens himself. The bodies were small, thin, with long arms and hands with four digits. After 50 years and in failing health, Marion Magruder eventually confided in his son about what he had seen, even though he and his classmates had been sworn to secrecy by their superiors under the threat of a court-martial. Then there's the claim of a civilian employee, June Crane. She had worked as a clerk typist with top security clearance at the base during the late 1940s and 50s. When all the interest about the 50-year anniversary of the Roswell incident was stirring in 1997, she agreed to give an interview in hopes of recording her experience. It was sometime in the early 1950s when Crane recalled a lieutenant handing her a piece of unusual metal that was lightweight, pliable, and returned to its original shape after being crumpled. It was also indestructible. After seeing the puzzlement on her face, the lieutenant explained that what she was holding was a piece of spaceship that had crashed in New Mexico. As of 1952, Crane had learned about the retrievals of three alien wreckages, including the Roswell incident. She also recalled transcribing documents that detailed the bodies of two aliens that were greenish-blue in color and four feet tall. Her superiors at the base required that she sign a confidentiality agreement and told her that she would be fined $10,000 if any evidence surfaced that she had leaked information. But at 72 years old, in 1997, she decided the risk of retribution was worth the opportunity to have her story told. Another somewhat unusual story attempts to explain how alien bodies were claimed to be stored at Wright Pat. Colonel Dan Fulgham suffered a horrendous ballooning accident in 1959. This left massive trauma to his head, causing it to swell into a bulbous shape. His eyes became small, slanted squints. Those who saw Colonel Fulgham at Wright Pat allegedly mistook him for an alien, or at least that's the story. You can find the photo of Colonel Fulgham at OhioFolklore.com. From my perspective, he looks like a guy who's been beaten about the face. There's no way I'd mistake him for an alien. This article also does nothing to explain the 12 years that existed between Roswell and Colonel Fulgham's accident. A 1956 book called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects was written by Air Force Captain Edward Ruppelt. It revealed the existence of Project Sign. This was a government-sanctioned study of UFOs that began in 1947. The program was based at wright Pat. Historical records claim that the project was terminated in 1949 and converted into Project Grudge. The reason for this termination and reassignment was that Project Science Director Robert Snyder had publicly expressed his growing conclusion that some UFOs were of extraterrestrial origin.
For anyone interested in further reading on the topic, just Google the estimate of the situation. This was Project Sign's alleged 1948 summary on their findings. This document, if it ever existed, has never been released to the public. Whatever the actual reason, Project Sign became Project Grudge. Many people from within the Project Sign program and from without it made strenuous claims that Project Grudge was nothing more than a government propaganda machine meant to squelch reports that UFOs were of extraterrestrial origin. In its final iteration, Project Grudge would be converted into the larger, more infamous military project known as Project Blue Book. The History Channel has produced and is now running a series based on the fabled program that operated at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. For all of you Ohio folklore fans, you may recall a previous episode on the 1966 Portage County UFO chase that was investigated by the project's head at the time, Major Hector Quintanella. Project Blue Book officially started in 1952 and held the same general ethos that claims of extraterrestrial UFOs were the result of one known domestic materials, two a mild form of mass hysteria, three hoaxers or pranksters and four persons suffering psychotic disorders. The program would run through 1970. Its official purpose was to determine any threat to national security posed by UFOs. and to scientifically analyze any data being brought forward. Project Blue Book ultimately concluded that no UFO reports ever posed a threat to national security. No quote evidence as presented suggested technology which was beyond known technologies of the time. And lastly, no reports of UFOs were of extraterrestrial origin. These were the conclusions that the program made after collecting more than 12,000 reports on UFOs from 1952 through the end of 1969. Speculation about the base's role in UFO sightings, their investigation and possible storage remains strong in Ohio folklore. Many have claimed that the vast military complex maintains a large underground network of tunnels and bunkers devoted to housing alien spacecraft as well as cryptogenic facilities for storing alien bodies. The US military has consistently denied these claims. Former Air Force Captain Robert Collins spent 6 of his 22 years of service at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He was a research analyst for the Foreign Technology Division. His primary duty was to investigate Soviet technology. He reports knowledge of four underground vaults that are enormous and connected by long tunnels. He believes that this is the location for storing alien wreckages and alien bodies. This runs counter to the common claim that these objects are held in the infamous Hangar 18. No such hangar exists. However, buildings 18 and 23 do exist. He states that these adjacent buildings were originally hangars that were converted into buildings in the early 1950s. Once the conversion was complete, Captain Collins claims that the tunnels and vaults were constructed underneath them. He claimed to have interviewed high-level officials who had knowledge of the vaults and their contents. This included information on the huge cryogenic systems that preserved the remains of alien bodies. 
stories of Wright Pat's connection to alien bodies and spacecraft have spanned decades. Passions run high on both sides of the issue. Many claim that the stories are ridiculous, that they're fueled by imaginative enthusiasts with a penchant for dramatic plots born of science fiction. The truth, they claim, is that Wright-Patt's function as a military base does necessitate silence around top-secret projects, but all of what's housed there is decidedly of the planet Earth. Equally passionate are the detractors, who point to signs of a cover-up, and first-hand accounts of those with nothing to gain from sharing their stories. It's this perspective that has kept the legend alive in Ohio folklore. These claims suggest that we're not alone in the universe, and that our government is fully aware of this. What might you consider the next time you're looking up into the vast sky above? When something catches your eye, something out of place, what will you consider? Might it just be a satellite streaking across the sky? Or perhaps a weather balloon? Or some top-secret high-tech drone meant for espionage? Maybe it might just be something more fantastic and otherworldly. My advice? Keep looking up into the sky above our home state of Ohio. You might just be surprised at what you're seeing. This week's episode of Ohio Folklore has now come to an end. But the searching doesn't have to end here. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, head over now to ohiofolklore.com. You can also get in touch on Facebook. Thanks for listening. And as always, keep wondering. Keep wondering.